Let's turn now for our scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, and we'll read the first ten verses. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this morning is about the wondrous grace of God. Twice we hear those words, by grace you have been saved. And verse 7 speaks of the exceeding or the immeasurable riches of God's grace. The lavishness of God's grace, it it exceeds, it goes beyond the power of human words to express. It goes beyond the power of human minds to grasp or the power of human hearts to adequately take in. It's a subject, as we hear in verse 7, for everlasting contemplation. Everlasting adoration and wonder. Immeasurable grace. Now last time we considered how Paul begins this chapter. How in the first three verses we have this dark description of, of who we are by nature. Who we are. Paul includes himself. He's not simply, uh, speaking of these former pagans who were brought to faith in Jesus Christ in a way that exempts him from this dark description, but he includes himself along with them as those who are by nature children of wrath. Grace cannot be known, cannot be appreciated for what it is without knowing who we are without it, as those who are otherwise spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, following uh, the desires of our bodily appetites, following the, the desires of our, of our minds as willing captives to Satan's lies, as those who otherwise are facing the just wrath of God. And then we come to verse four and we read the words, but God. And, uh, I've actually heard uh, a sermon on just those two words. And you might think, well, that seems to be uh, a little bit questionable homiletically to preach a whole sermon on just two words, but God. But I can assure you that uh, it was a powerful sermon in its context 
that proclaim the wonder of this amazing contrast between who we are by nature and how God makes all the difference by such amazing grace as described here. God's grace, God's work, God's power, that's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference between being spiritually dead, children of wrath, spiritually alive, children of God. And our text shows us how such grace makes uh, the difference. God saved us by the immeasurable riches of his grace. We're going to consider together those three things that are then listed in your bulletin, beginning with the fact that this is grace of sovereign love. The source of this grace is given to us in verse 4 where we read, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Divine love, mighty love, powerful, free love, a love that's freely bestowed on the undeserving and the unworthy. It's God's love that makes this difference between wrath and life. Verse 3 ends with the, the phrase, just as the others. We're children of wrath, just as the others. There's no difference between ourselves that yet remain spiritually dead as children of wrath. God's love is the deepest reason that is given in Scripture for this difference. It's the deepest reason that's given in God's Word for predestination. We heard that already in chapter 1. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, we read, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that is the expression of a love that is rooted in eternity. Whom He foreknew, we read uh, in the 8th chapter, whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Whom He foreknew, in love, he foreknows everything about everyone, but God's elect are described as those whom he foreknew in that intimate way of his loving purpose. And we cannot get behind that. We cannot uh, discover any other cause. If we were to ask, why uh, does God love us? We can only say that it was his good pleasure to love us. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And you can't get behind or go deeper than that. Certainly God does not love us because of anything in us. Anything in us that makes us differ uh, from others. It doesn't say in our text that God loved us when we started to show some interest in uh, spiritual things doesn't say that God loved us when we began to uh, read the Bible or when we started to pray or when we uh, began to go to church. Even when we were dead in trespasses, we read at the beginning of verse 5, again, to emphasize our condition in which God loved us, a condition of helplessness in our spiritual death as well as offensiveness in our sins, our transgressions. 
And yes, this is the condition out of which God delivered us by making us alive. But it's also the condition in which He loved us. As we heard just a moment ago from Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take the worst person you could possibly imagine, living or dead. And you might select someone in your thoughts who is guilty of the most heinous crimes, genocide perhaps, horrific brutality and cruelty, criminal behavior. And you know that you haven't done such things. You know that you have not committed such crimes. And there's a genuine sense in which you might say that such a person is a greater sinner than yourself. Paul understood himself to be the chief of sinners. He wasn't just exaggerating. It wasn't just a, an, an exceptionally humble and pious sentiment. No, he persecuted the church, and he realized that he was a great sinner. But take the worst person that you could imagine, living or dead, and yet the fact remains that, that you and I are no more worthy of God's love than that person. We're, we're no more lovable in ourselves. We're not worthy of God's love in any respect that would distinguish us from the worst of people. No one is saved. Absolutely no one is saved because somehow they are uh, better, better candidates for grace. By grace you have been saved. Paul repeats it there again in verse 5. It's God's love that made us special objects of His mercy. God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us made us alive. Yes, God is rich in mercy. That's who He is. From all eternity, if we may use such temporal sounding language, God is a merciful God. Even before there were any objects that whom he had created who were in any kind of misery and then uh, special objects of the expression of his merciful being. God is merciful. That's who he is. In him is this storehouse, this, this treasure of mercy that is so rich, so vast. His mercy is over all his works, the Bible says. He is mercy, merciful also to the, the ungrateful and the evil. He fills their hearts with food and gladness. He causes his bright, warm sunshine to shine upon them. He sends his rain upon the just and the unjust. Yes, God parcels out, if you will, from this treasure house, this storehouse of His rich mercy, these, these gifts that He distributes in kindness, even to those who continue to ignore Him, even those who remain children of wrath and will face His judgment, who have received good things in this life, like Lazarus or like uh, the rich man in parable. God is merciful. But His special saving love opens this storehouse of His mercy to us. 
as if all the doors and all the windows are flung wide open. And he gives to us of the very best of his treasures. The indescribable gift. His own beloved son. Divine love does not spare him, but makes him the propitiation for our sins. In this, the love of God is manifested. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the the wrath bearer. The one who by his suffering would appease God's wrath and satisfy his justice that otherwise would have been poured out against us for all eternity. God so loved us that he gave his son and didn't spare him. And having not spared his own son, he will freely give us all things in him. Yes, the source of this grace is the sovereign love of God because of his great love with which he loved us. He bestows these saving gifts that are then enumerated before us. And we're look at, we're going to look at those gifts of his saving grace. And here we're not looking at the source of grace so much as the working of grace. How God's grace saves us. And there are four things that are, that are, uh, described here. There is the grace of new life. God made us alive together with Christ. We've been considering the love of God. Let's ask, what do most people think of the love of God? I think it's fair to say that most people don't think at all about the love of God. How many people celebrated Thanksgiving uh, last month without once offering one sincere prayer of gratitude to the giver of every gifts, every gift for which they give thanks somehow? I don't really know what that means. Without acknowledging God as the giver. But how many feel love in their hearts because of his goodness and kindness to them in such a way that truly moves them to want to honor him and give him thanks and praise him? Well, they're few and far between. And even among religious people, how many of them uh, think very infrequently of the love of God? And if they think of the love of God at all, it's, it's, it's rather like a kind of vague, Comfort that they derive with the thought that when they die, they're going to go to a better place. It's kind of a sentimental notion that, that God loves them somehow, some way. But is it, a, is it a love of God that really moves them? Is there real reverence in their relationship to this God of love? Is there a real prayer to him? Do they trust in him? No, most people who might even speak of the reality of of God's existence or even of his love, they've not really been made alive to the reality of God. So as to be profoundly and personally affected by that reality, leading them to call upon him, leading them to revere him from the heart, leading them to listen to his word. You see, that all changes when grace enters in. Then people awaken to the reality of their own sin. Yes, their own need. And they awaken to the reality of who Jesus Christ is, as God's provision, as the only Savior. And they begin to take a deep, personal, profound interest in Him and who He is. 
and what He has done. And the reality of God's Word, that is the actual communication of the living God in written form in a book, suddenly becomes precious to them. And they read that Word. And they delight in hearing it proclaimed. They search it. They care about what it says. They want to live it. They want to follow it. Because the reality of God and of His truth has taken hold of them. They're spiritually alive. They're not just religious folk who observe some practices which happen to be Christian. Like other people observe practices that happen to be Buddhist or Muslim or what have you. No, they're spiritually alive to the reality of God. And they're moved by His love. You He made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins with Christ. You notice that language made us alive together with Christ. That is in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ such that His very own resurrection from the dead has its saving effect upon us. And as those who have become united to Him by faith, there is there is new resurrection life. There is newness of life. The power that raised Christ from the dead is actually at work in the lives of His people. You see how that involves, again, this idea of union with Jesus Christ, a theme that just carries through this uh, this book. We've heard it again and again in chapter 1. We've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Him we also have an inheritance. In Him we were sealed by the Spirit of promise. Union with Christ. Here again, three times in Christ in our in our text uh, this this morning. Made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This union with the living Savior is expressed also in this uh, language of verse 6. The second gift of grace is this grace of union with the exalted Savior raised us up together and made us sit together. You notice again the repeated language of together, together. That's not simply referring to our relationship to Jesus as individuals. That's referring to our relationship together as the body of Christ. That's never, you know, absent from Paul's thinking, it appears, throughout this, this letter. It involves the, the, the unity of, of the body of Christ as joined to him. Made to sit together in the heavenly places. We share in His death. We share in His resurrection. We share in His exaltation. As members of His body together, we already share in His victory. We reign with Christ already as the exalted one. And our actual presence with Him is certain. We have our head in heaven. And we are members of His body. And we are certain to follow and be admitted into His very presence, literally. And then thirdly, there is the grace of saving faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
And we well, might well ask the question, what is, what is meant, meant here by this word, it, it is the gift of God? What, what is that? Well, salvation, right? Salvation which is not of works. Salvation which is not a reward for our devotion or our obedience or any good uh, works that we can do. Yes, salvation is all of grace and salvation is a gift. But we must, we must have faith. And the idea could creep in that, yes, salvation is of grace, but, but, uh, we gotta believe and, and that's kind of our contribution. That's what we do. And it's like Paul anticipating this way of thinking says, hold, be careful now. Be careful. Don't take pride in your faith. Don't think that your faith somehow makes you superior. This faith, this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Faith itself has been granted to you. To you it has been granted, not only to believe in him, Paul says, but to suffer for his namesake. Faith, the gift of God. That's grace. Leaving us nothing to boast of. In fact, that includes also then the grace of good works that Christians do. In verses 9 and 10, it says, Not of works lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know that grace accounts for every good thing that you do? Good works are not the pathway to salvation. And good works are not your payment to God for salvation. Right? That's an important way of think, uh, distinction as well. Otherwise, we, we could live by this debtor's ethic. God saved me, now I have to kind of pay him back by being good. No, good works are neither the pathway to salvation, nor are they the payment to God for salvation. Good works are part of the grace of salvation. Your good works show God's workmanship. He made you alive. He created you in Christ Jesus. That's that's another way of saying that he, he made you alive. He gave you life by his creation. And he created you new so that you could walk the pathway of salvation. Not the pathway to salvation but the pathway of salvation, which you live out the reality of grace in your life. By grace. It's a, it's a path that God prepared in every respect, in every detail. It's a path that God prepared for you in terms of what kinds of good works that you do. Now, there are good works that we all have in common and that we are all called to love God uh, supremely and to love our neighbor as ourselves according to the commandments of God. But we all live in a certain context and in certain relationships and with a certain vocation, a certain job. And God prepared those good works that we that we walk in according to those individual distinctions of our of our place in his providence and his calling. God prepared the kind of good works that we do. There are good works. There are certain kinds of good works that I will never do. I will never give birth or care for an infant child the way uh, my wife uh, has. 
That's just one illustration. You see, we could go on and on and on and on. We serve God according to uh, our specific calling. God prepared the kind of good works we do. God prepared the quality of those good works. You know, the fact is that some people, some Christians are more holy than others. And God's grace equipping them, enabling them to serve him, is remarkably superior to the measure of grace and the gifts that he gives others. Even the humble apostle Paul acknowledged that he labored more than they all, referring to the other apostles. That wasn't a claim of superiority or pride. To each one is given a measure of faith, and there are varying degrees in which we live out our faith and seek to glorify God according to the measure of his sanctifying power in our lives. It's also obvious, isn't it, that God has prepared uh, how many good works we do or how long we do good works. Some of my favorite biographies are from famous preachers, and it's amazing how many of them die uh, far before they ever reach the age that I am now. And they did a whole lot more good works. I couldn't, you know, sometimes it's just phenomenal. Whitfield preached more sermons in a few years than I will in my lifetime. And he preached for many years, but often it was three, four times a day, seven days a week. And he died at 56. Spurgeon, I think, died at 56. Jonathan Edwards, 51 or 54. Robert Murray McShane, 28. God is prepared how long we're going to serve him in this life. He gives you the privilege of by, by grace to serve him. He empowers you by grace to do so. He works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he accepts your imperfect works by grace. And he rewards your imperfect works. By grace. It's grace from beginning to end. I hope you find that very comforting as you're aware of the deficiency of your good works and the meagerness of your service to Christ. And I hope the, the message of grace motivates you to want to do better, to glorify Him, but not with a, not with a, a, a kind of works mentality, but with gratitude, giving all gr praise to God who has prepared these good works so that we might walk in them. It's all of him, these saving gifts of his grace. And it's grace finally for unending display, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That, that describes the purpose. We look at the source of this grace, the working of this grace, and the purpose of this grace. And the purpose of grace is to show more grace. God's purpose in saving us is not our good works. Now, there's a sense in which we must say that, well, in a way it is because we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, indeed. But as saved sinners, the result of that amazing grace that we should be like Jesus will be a cause of everlasting praise and wonder. It is to show forth his grace to us for all eternity, for ages to come. 
Now, in the Bible, you find this very simple framework and description of ter- in terms of the present age and the age to come. The present age and the age to come. That's a, that's a kind of a simple but very important key to uh, resolve or to shed light on a lot of controversies about end times thinking. There is this present age, and then there is the age to come. But here this word age in the plural seems to just emphasize all of time from here on, going forward in this present life and the eternal life to come. Yes, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the riches of his grace and his kindness have been revealed and they have been successively revealed down through the centuries and they continue to be revealed and they will be revealed for all eternity. And it will take all eternity to unfold them. If there's one takeaway that I would want you to hold foremost in your thoughts and minds about this sermon is the importance to believe in the greatness of God's love as it's manifested in his grace. God's love should be our continued focus. In 1 John 4, the apostle says, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. And that that seems to indicate uh, the experiential knowledge of God's love, but also uh, a faith in God's love that believes what seems to be incredible. And it describes the ongoing exercise of faith. God loves me. And I don't measure that according to my fluctuating feelings. But I exercise faith in it in the way it's revealed objectively in Jesus Christ. Exercise faith in the love of God revealed in Him. We're too little affected by God's love. We're too little motivated by it. We're too little uh, comforted by it. Paul prays that Uh, for the Thessalonians, that the Lord would direct their hearts into the love of God. Well, they knew the love of God. These were Christians. But Paul prays for them that the Lord would direct their hearts, that their lives would more and more be centered on the wonderful reality of God's love for them. In our deficiencies of our grasp of God's love, that will continue throughout this imperfect life, look forward to the everlasting demonstration of the kindness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep the reality of that love before you. Seek to Abide and dwell in the sincere and firm belief in that love. Seek to be affected by it. Seek to treasure and value it above every everything else. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Amen.